before we come to our, our topic for this week, which is um, joy in God, uh, we've had another blue slip through last week um, with a question uh, based on what we said last time. So it says, is there still room in the believer's life for the still small voice of calm now that we have God's revealed word in scripture? So it's a good question. Uh, we were talking last week about how God speaks to us through uh, his word. I want to say, first of all, so the, the phrase is from uh, a passage in 1 Kings 19, verse 12, uh, where Elijah is um, in, in a cave. Some of you will know the story. And uh, there's all these different things uh, happening, earthquakes and fires. Uh, and finally, here's what it says in the King James Version. There's a still uh, small voice and comes out. And uh, it's often taken that God is speaking uh, to him through that. But I want to say, first of all, that in terms of that phrase, um, it's not really a very good translation of what's being said. So if you look at, um, in the ESV, probably do it later on, uh, it uses the phrase, uh, a small whisper uh, there. The word for voice uh, isn't just a word for voice. It's used for things like trumpets or sheep, or it's used for things like the rustling of a leaf. So it talks at one point in the Bible where the rustle of a leaf will scare an army away. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a voice like someone speaking um, for that to be uh, the case. So quite a lot of translations now don't translate it as voice, they translate it as noise. So if you're a a Paul Simon Garfunkel fan, it's more like the sound of silence. Um, And with that as well, if you think about it, if it is a voice, what is it saying? Actually in scripture it doesn't say anything. He comes outside and then God speaks to him. So God is speaking, but probably not in the still small voice. It's more the silence at the end of what's been happening. And the second thing I want to say, though, is God does speak to Elijah, obviously, because he comes out and God speaks to him. But I want to ask, is that a normative experience? Is that a normal experience for the Christian? After all, this is Elijah. It's a prophet of God. So it's slightly different from the situation uh, we're in. Um, But that doesn't necessarily rule it out. Um, But really, the question is, does God speak to us in our heads? Um, We looked at this a few weeks ago when we looked at uh, Hebrews. And I said, you know, we have an internal monologue. I certainly do. And I sometimes wonder, you know, is is it God speaking? Um, But I'm hesitant to say that God is speaking to me. Because, for example, uh, say we were trying to decide what we're going to have for our snacks uh, next week. And you've been sitting and you're thinking, you've been praying about it. And you think it would be a really good idea to have donuts uh, as our snack next week. uh, Because, you know, that's that's welcoming. Uh, It's it's nice to be able to share something nice together. Uh, Now think about the two different ways you can come and talk to me about it. You can come and say... Uh, I've been thinking and praying about it. I think we should have donuts next week. And I say, well, okay, well, I plan to have mini rolls. I'll think about it. Um, if you come to me and say, God has told me and made it clear to me that we're to have donuts next week, what do I say? It's hard for me to turn that down, isn't it? Now, you might be describing the same experience. It might just be in terms of language. And actually, you know, we, we do get those voices. If I, again, I'll go back to what I said a few weeks ago. If it's good advice, if it's uh, in line with the scripture, then... Go with it. Uh, whether it's your internal monologue becoming a bit more godly as you read God's word week by week, day by day. Uh, or whether it's God, well, in one sense it doesn't matter, does it? If it's a good thing to do, then then get on and do it. But I'd be careful about using this, the sort of phrases, God has told me this. Because it, it makes, if you want to argue with it, then you're arguing with God rather than with that person. So if you want to come back on that, do fill in a, a blue slip at the end. The opportunity to fill in blue slips at the end as well this week. Now, on to our subject for this week. When I became a Christian uh, 21 years ago, when I was 12, I got given a little booklet called Knowing God Personally. And uh, in that little booklet, it uh, explained about the gospel, and then it had a little prayer at the back. 
uh, which I prayed. And then after the prayer, it had this diagram in the back. I don't know if you've seen it before. Fact, faith, and feeling. It's quite popular uh, at some point, probably in the 1980s. Uh, mine was in the 90s, at least. Um, but I think it was big in the 80s. And the idea of this diagram was, well, if you've said this prayer, if you've decided to become a Christian, uh, what you've got here is that uh, you've got some facts, you need to have faith, and then feelings are sort of this extra bit at the back. You see it sort of attached, uh, but not quite the same as facts and faith, which are together. And what it was really trying to say was, you know, you might not feel like you've become uh, a, a Christian, but feelings are sort of uh, optional. They might not, might be there, might not be there. I want to say, first of all, there's a lot of truth to that. What we were seeing last week, uh, you know, we can't put our feelings above the word of God. The word of God says that if we have faith uh, in Christ, then we're, we are in, in Christ. We are saved, we are rescued. And whether we feel rescued or not. But on the other hand, are feelings just optional? Should they, we never expect them? Should we, we not expect to have any sort of feeling towards God? Well, I want to say no. That's not what the, the Bible says. In fact, the Bible actually commands us, God commands us to have certain feelings. So, for example, we are commanded to love God. So if you look at the back of, um, uh, if you look at the back of these sheets, uh, those who've got the, the blue ones, sorry, the green ones don't have it on, I should have thought of that, I'll think of that next time. Um, the ones that have the, the, the blue sheets, um, it says this, um, so Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. Now just think about that for a second. That is God commanding us to love God and to love others. That's a bit strange for our 21st century mindsets, isn't it? We think of love as something that you can't control. Now you might want to argue that it's just obedience. It's saying if you love someone, you know, it's doing nice things for them. But then there's this phrase, isn't there, in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, if the Bible just means obedience by love, if it just means doing nice things by love, then that phrase makes no sense, does it? It becomes, if you obey my commandments, you will obey my commandments. That's really what it's saying. If that's all we put love down to, if you obey, you will obey. That's a bit of a nonsense sentence. What it's saying there is that the motivation is an emotion. It's our love for Christ. But the Bible also makes it clear that love is a gift. So Romans 5 verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So although God commands us to love him, God's put the love in our hearts uh, if we're Christians. Uh, God has done it, so he's given us what we require. And I want to argue this morning that the same is true with joy. We are commanded in the Bible to be joyful. In our reading that we had before, we were told to rejoice always, weren't we? Um, And in fact, 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, rejoice always. It's just there. Yet joy is a gift of God. That's why our statement, which we've got for this one, is we believe joy in God is his gift to be shown in every aspect of the Christian life, but is not always to be expected, but always pursued. God wants us as individuals, and God wants us as a church, to be joyful. So, what's at stake? Well, I want to argue that what's at stake really is the character of our church. This is why we've included this in our distinctives, a bit different from the other ones. 
But many of us have been in churches and had experience of churches where the doctrine is really sound, the people are really discerning, the teaching is biblical, but there's been no joy. There's been no expression of the idea of rejoicing, being happy to be a Christian. And actually, we want our church not just to be right in, in doctrine in that sense, we want it to be characterised by joy, by what we're commanded to do in Scripture. So I think actually the character of our church is at stake. We need to be joyful. But I also want to argue that the other thing that's at stake is the glory of God again. A joyless Christianity is a less than biblical Christianity. Really, it's believers not taking seriously the command to rejoice. And I want to argue as well that a joyless Christianity is dishonouring to God. Could you imagine if somebody made you a meal and uh, you said to them, this is the most amazing meal ever. Yeah? That's not really glorifying the meal. Even though the words are coming out, there's no joy in it. If something is amazing, then we need to express that. And it's not just uh, me that thinks it's Jonathan Edwards, uh, who's, who wrote a lot about this. He says, God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. So what he's saying there is it's, it's, it's good to know God. There's some benefit to that. But if God isn't rejoicing, if we don't enjoy, if we're not excited by what we find, then God isn't as glorified as when we are. If we look at God and we're not excited, if we look at God and we're not finding wonderful things there, but just seeing bare facts, then we're not glorifying God in the way that we could. So that's what's at stake, God's glory and also the character of our church. But what do we mean by joy in God? Well, we're not talking about a mere fleeting, fickle happiness. We're not just talking about that feeling that sort of comes and goes depending on what the weather is like. This is how someone put it. He said, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. So again, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul, produced by the Holy Spirit, as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. And this joy in God is the chief purpose in our life. We know the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, not the one that we've been doing, the Heidelberg one, but there's another one. And the first question is, what is the chief end of man? Why is man here? Well, the chief end of man, it says, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I think often in churches we talk a lot about glorifying God, but not a a lot about the second bit, do we? Enjoying God forever. And actually there's a contention among some that those two things are really the same. There's one end in mind as glorifying God and enjoying him are one and the same. So God is glorified as we enjoy him. So Thomas Watson, who who wrote years and years and years ago, uh, he was a Puritan, he wrote this. Would it not be an encouragement to a subject to hear his prince say to him, you will honour and please me very much if you go to yonder mine of gold and dig as much gold for yourself as you can carry away. So for God to say, go to the ordinances, get as much grace as you can, dig out as much salvation as you can, and the more happiness you have, the more I shall count myself glorified. Those two things really are linked together. As we enjoy God, we glorify him. But I want to say this morning that the goal is not joy, full stop. The joy, the goal is joy in God. Because all people, all people pursue their own happiness 
So it might be at school. Uh, you find that there are people who uh, work really hard at school. And they've always got their heads down. They always do their homework on time. They always do all those things. And they're pursuing their happiness in the long term. They're thinking, right, I can get a good job at the end of this. I can get good grades. That'll make my parents happy. Or you might find people at school, for example, who sort of slack off uh, quite a lot and just try and, and do other things that they enjoy. But they're seeking their happiness, but just in the short term. So both people are doing opposite things, but they're both seeking their happiness. Or think about food. Again, sorry to mention food so much, especially when it's going to be now lunchtime uh, for, our, for our stomachs. Um, but the man who eats a load of food, really, he's pursuing his own happiness, isn't he? Eating lots of food. Or the man who diets is pursuing his own happiness as well, isn't he? He's thinking, I want to have a nice body. You could even argue, if you take it to the extreme, that someone taking their own life. That person considers themselves happier in that state than alive. So all of us pursue our own happiness, without exception. And to pursue happiness or joy is not sinful. What's sinful about what we do is where we seek our enjoyment, where we seek our joy, where we seek our happiness. Because we were designed to find our joy in God. So this is what Augustine, who was writing even longer ago, uh, wrote. He was writing to God in his confessions. You yourself, God, are their joy. This is the happy life and this alone to rejoice in you, about you and because of you. This is the life of happiness and it is not to be found anywhere else. So that is the joy that we're talking about this morning. Joy in God, not just joy for the sake of it, but joy that is found in the right place in God. So how do we, how do we, what do we mean by pursuing joy then? Well, what I want to say this morning is that joy is something to be sought after. It's something to be fought for. Uh, so this is what, um, uh, this is what Jonathan Edwards uh, wrote again. Persons need not and ought not to set any bounds to their spiritual and gracious appetites. Rather, they ought to be endeavouring by all possible means to inflame their desires and to obtain more spiritual pleasures. Our hungerings and thirstings after God and after Jesus Christ and after holiness can't be too great for the value of these things, for they are of infinite value. Therefore, endeavour to promote spiritual appetites by laying yourself in the way of allurement. There is no such thing as excess in taking of this spiritual food. There is no such virtue as temperance in spiritual feasting. So what he's saying there, in this life, actually we want to get as much God as we can. We want to get as much joy in God as we can fit in our spiritual stomachs, if you like, if you're going with a food analogy again. It's something that we pursue. We should be seeking this joy. So we always pursue it. But we've also got that phrase that we're not always to expect it. Whilst we can pursue joy, whilst we can chase after it, if you like, we can't guarantee it. I said at the beginning, joy is a gift of God. Sometimes we will not be feasting till we're satisfied in God. Sometimes we'll just be hungering after God. Sometimes it will be our own sinfulness in not pursuing it as we should. And other times there'll be no discernible reason why we can't find that joy. Some of us experience long winters of the soul without joy in God or sometimes without joy in anything. And I wanted to say at the beginning that to be without joy is not sinful. And I hope that takes the burden away. To be without joy is not sinful. But not to pursue joy, I think, is. 
Whatever the state of the soul, we can always pursue joy. We can chase after it. We can put ourselves in the path of joy. But we can't produce it ourselves. It's the gift of God. So I want to stop for a second and just address people who might not be finding their joy in God this morning. Where are you seeking your joy? Where are you trying to find your happiness? We've said that everybody does it. What makes you happy this morning? Have you found that joy in God? Have you found a joy in anything? Actually, I think the Bible would argue um, that actually we can't find ultimate joy in anything else. Augustine again said, our hearts are restless until they find our rest in you. Are you still restless? Well, I imagine if you haven't found your joy in God, that you will be. And we find in our society, don't we, that we move from one thing to another, one thing to another, looking for joy, looking for happiness. So I want to plead with you this morning, if that's the state that you're in, come to him, come to Jesus, and find your rest in him, find your happiness in him. But why are we singling out joy? Is it really that important to to talk about joy? Isn't it just really selfishness to want our happiness? Well, we need to ask a crucial question, don't we? Where is it in the Bible? Where is it in the Bible? Well, joy or rejoice uh, is in the Bible 400 times in the Bible. 400 times. I don't know if you've noticed that it's there so much. If you think about other things that we talk about quite a lot, like patience, that's just there 41 <coughs> times. Uh, or self-control is just 18 times. Now, it's not about how many times it's in the Bible, uh, is it? Uh, and it should be on our agenda, even if it wasn't on that number of, of, of times. Um, but we're going to look at the letter of joy, really. The, the letter to the Philippians. So we had our reading from Philippians chapter 1, uh, 12 to 16, uh, sorry, 12 to 26. And we see there that Paul's reason for remaining alive, Paul's reason for staying uh, with the Philippians, if you like, is for their progress and for their joy. Did you see that? Uh, So it's there, uh, down in uh, verse 25. It says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So Paul there, as he's writing this, he's talking about the fact he wants to be with Jesus. Uh, He doesn't know what's going to happen. He wants to go to glory. Uh, He might die soon. But God is keeping him alive and he's keeping him on the earth for a purpose. Now, we've talked a lot recently about progress, haven't we? About growth, about moving on in the spiritual life. But here he puts joy right alongside it. He works for their progress and for their joy. So it seems right to talk about joy. Paul sees his mission in life, his task in life, as working for their joy. Do you see your purpose in life in those terms? Working for the joy of others? If you are alive this morning, I think, yep, I think everyone is, good. Then God has a purpose for your life. That's why you're still here. If he no longer had a purpose for your life, then you'd have been taken home already. And his purpose really is the same for us. Progress and joy. Ours and others. And maybe you're feeling in your life, well, my circumstances aren't right to be working for joy. Really, life is hard at the moment. Uh, It's hard to work for my own joy, let alone the joy of others. But the amazing truth we read in this letter uh, is where is Paul? Paul is in prison, isn't he? He's wondering whether he's going to be executed. That's why he doesn't know whether he's uh, going to be alive or dead. 
Paul is being belittled and slandered, we read. People are, uh, are trying to get him in trouble by, by saying nasty things about him. And yet, he can write this wonderful letter of joy. He can write how he is rejoicing, even in the midst of all that. And if you're thinking this is just a thing with the Philippians, well, think about what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. This is 2 Corinthians 1, 24. Now, the Corinthians were a really messed up church. They had really big problems. But this is what he writes to them. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith that you stand firm. So even with the Corinthians, a messed up church, you think he could be working for all sorts of things with them. They used to be really, really quite crazy. But he's working with them for their joy. This was a church where people used to get drunk at communion. You'd think he'd have other priorities, wouldn't you? But joy is a big deal for Paul. So the job of a minister, especially then, is to work for the joy of the church. That's, that's my job. I work for your joy, if I'm taking this seriously, as a pastor. Is it just that way round? Well, have a look at Hebrews 13, uh, 17. Uh, I'll read it to you in the ESV, then I'll read it to you in the NIV. Uh, ESV says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls, as those who would get, have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The NIV interprets it a little bit, and I feel more comfortable it telling you than me. It says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that will be of no benefit to you. So actually, I work for your joy as a pastor, and as a church here, you're commanded to work for my joy um, by, by letting it not be a burden to me. So it's a sort of partnership of joy. I work for your joy, you work for my joy. And the amazing thing is that within church, it's not just the minister and the congregation. Actually, it's everybody in the church, isn't it? Everybody working for each other's joy. If it's that important, then shouldn't we be working towards that? Just think for a second, what could you do for someone in this room that would make them more joyful in Christ? What could you do? How could you help them pursue joy? Because that's part of our job, part of our responsibility as Christians. Well, to help us think about this, we've got the question, how do we pursue joy in God? How do we pursue joy? Now, if you've ever read the book Desiring God by John Piper, it talks a lot about this. Uh, he has a chapter where it gives you 15 points uh, on, on how to pursue joy. I've got it down to six, and we're just going to look at them briefly. Um, but if you want to read them all, they're there in Desiring God. Um, but the first thing I want to say is, how do we pursue uh, joy in God? Well, we fight sin as a forgiven sinner. Sin, really, the things that we do that are wrong, they kill our joy. So we fight sin. If sin is killing the joy in our life, if it makes us down, if it makes us sad, then we need to fight our sin, don't we? Not by our own efforts, by the blood of Christ. Sin will kill our joy. So if we're serious about fighting for joy... We need to be serious about holiness. We need to be serious about fighting our sin. Secondly, we need to pray for it as a thirsty drinker. Pray for it as a thirsty drinker. We said that joy is a gift. So actually it means that we need to pray for it, don't we? We need to acknowledge that God gives it to us. If we just seek joy in our own strength, there's a danger that we'll think that we've got it, rather than it being a gift from God. So we pray for it as a thirsty drinker, wanting more of that joy in God. 
Thirdly, we wield the word. Wield is like what you do with a sword. Wield the word. The word is God's chosen means to bring us joy. Remember back to that definition at the beginning? Joy is that, uh, joy stirred up in us by the word of Christ. So we read of all that God has done for us through him. We meet him in his word. And that brings joy into our hearts. So we wield the word in the fight for joy. And then we wield the world in the fight for joy. We can use the world against itself. So for example, this morning, uh, as you woke up, even though you got your extra hour in bed, uh, you might have been thinking, oh, I feel quite tired this morning. I really need something to keep me awake. Uh, This morning I've had such a long week. And you get yourself a cup of coffee. So you can come this morning, you can be awake uh, to speak to one another, to, to hear his words. You have your cup of coffee. That's using the world in the fight for joy. So having that caffeine to help you uh, hear his word, help you stay awake through it, um, that's a way that you can wield the world. Now, we don't want to take that to an extreme. We don't want to do anything illegal before you go down that. You can see some of, some eyebrows going up. Um, but within what God has given us, legitimately in his word, we can use it. Um, if you think about other ways, um, you could go for a walk in the Dales, couldn't you? And look at the wonder of his creation. That would be wielding the world in the fight for joy, wouldn't it? As we see all the wonderful things that God has done for us there. That would be a way of fighting for joy, using the world. And also we think about the fact that we're human beings. God has not made us floating spirits. Actually, God has given us physical bodies. So, for example, if we want to fight for for joy, if we want to fight for holiness, think about our uh, patience that we have. Well, is patience a fruit of the spirit or is it the fruit of a good night's sleep? Actually, if we're finding ourselves impatient, it might be that we're not giving ourselves enough sleep. We're not sort of recognising the fact that we're human, that we have physical bodies. So we need sleep, we need nourishment, we need connections with other people as human beings. That's just part of being human, part of being in the world. And we can use that to help us in our fight for joy. We can use that in our fight for holiness in that, by actually recognising the fact that we're human beings. So that's uh, number four, wield the world. Number five, spend time with God's people, alive and dead. Now again, before you think I'm presenting any dodgy doctrines uh, here, what I mean by that is that we can uh, spend time with our brothers who are here, brothers and sisters. He's given us brothers in arms in the fight, if you like. We can encourage one another. Uh, We can help one another. Uh, But also, we can read books, can't we, of saints that have, have fought this same fight in the past. We can read Christian biographies and see how they lived. That's what I mean by speaking with dead people, not anything uh, dodgy. So we can spend time with them as well. Uh, I know um, Martin Lloyd-Jones used to talk of taking his holidays in the past. Because he would would read people who'd lived at another time. So that's number five, spend time with God's people, alive and dead. And then sixthly, spend yourselves for others. Spend yourselves for others. Often joy is absent because we look within ourselves, when actually we should be looking outward to others. Jesus himself said, didn't he, he's more blessed to give than to receive. Do we believe that? That we're more blessed when we give? And actually part of our joy can be spending ourselves for other people. We gain more by it, if you like, by actually giving ourselves for other people. So that's how we fight for joy. We, uh, uh, we, uh, we fight for sin as a forgiven sinner. We pray for us as a thirsty drinker, we wield the word, we wield the world, we spend time with God's people, and we spend ourselves for others. So that's what we do, but how do we display 
join God. We've only got one more point after this. I want to say that we do it genuinely. Genuinely. Church is a family. And that family really is somewhere where you can be yourself. There's few things more devastating than fake joy, isn't there? Think about the, the, the classic image of the clown who's got the sort of big smiley face on. But actually you know that deep down they're sad. You know, they're frowning, but they've got the smile painted on. So we need to be genuine with our joy, not just put on fake painted smiles. And I want to say as well within this that it's going to be, this is quite a long word, okay, temperamentally appropriate. I'll explain what that means. It means that God made us all different. We all have different characters. We all have different ways of doing things. So some of of us, when we're uh, excited, you sort of bounce up and down. We're sort of Tigger characters. We just can't, can't sort of stop. And even when we're not that excited, we're still bouncing up and down. Some of us are Tiggers. But some of us are Eeyores. Have you, seen, have you seen Winnie the Pooh? Yeah? Eeyore's this donkey that's always sort of down. And if he's really excited, then, you know, you might get a sort of corner of, corner of a smile. But God has made us all different. And joy to one person might look different from joy to another. And sometimes it can be hard to tell with both those extremes, can't it? You can't tell when the uh, Tigger is not joyful in God, because he's always bouncing up and down. You can't tell when Eeyore is joyful in God, because he's always wearing a bit of a frown and always looking down. And that means we shouldn't put our expectations of what joy looks like on somebody else. Because it might look different for them. We can't expect Eeyores to look like Tiggers uh, with this. Um, so think about it. Think of our families. Families have different ways of showing affection, don't they? Uh, so some families are really hug, hug families, aren't they? Uh, and you sort of discover this sometimes when you get married and you discover, you know, your in-laws are, you know, big huggers or... And some families, you know, they, they might have once tapped their child on the shoulder to say well done for something, but there's no physical contact whatsoever. It's similar with this, isn't it? Actually, within our family, we'll have different ways of showing our emotions. We'll have different ways of doing it. Somebody actually can be deeply moved without us really seeing it in the way that we'd expect. But I want to say, even though that's all true, that's not an excuse then not to seek joy. You know, well, I'm just not a joyful person, really. That doesn't really work. Because actually, joy is a fruit of the Spirit, if we use that with any other fruit of the Spirit, then it just wouldn't work, would it? So, I'm just not a kind person. So, it's alright for me not to be kind. Or, you know, I'm just not a patient person, so I'm not going to try and be more patient. Or, I'm just not a self-controlled kind of guy. It doesn't work, does it? We couldn't use that with joy. So, we can't use our temperament as an excuse. But it might look different in the way that we rejoice. We still need to pursue it, whatever type of character we are. And if we try and fake joy, then what does that do? Well, it destroys ourselves. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard the phrase that's quite popular in business speak. It's fake it till you make it. So the idea there is, you know, if you're not confident, just pretend to be confident. And eventually you'll be confident and, you know, do these sort of power stances and you'll be fine. But it doesn't work in the Christian life. The Bible calls that hypocrisy. And actually, if you think about what Jesus condemned in the Bible, he condemned that more than most other things. He condemned that most strongly. And often hypocrisy is sort of accepted as a fact of life in church. But it shouldn't be. We need to be genuine. Otherwise we destroy ourselves. We become hypocrites. And we also destroy others. Hypocrisy is contagious, I think. If others are faking it, then people will fake it to fit in, won't they? 
And anyone, nobody knows who's faking it anymore when you get to that sort of situation. So our hypocrisy can be soul-destroying. We can destroy other people. You can meet people as well, who, you know, they talk about it as one victory after another. They're never, ever down. And you can be left thinking, well, have I not got what they've got? So faking it is not an option because it destroys ourselves and it destroys others. But secondly, we're to do it, so we're to do it genuinely, we're to do it sensitively. Because joy is to be pursued but not expected. When we gather on a Sunday morning, when we gather on a Sunday evening, when we gather at life groups, not everybody gathers in the same state. Uh, I love the, the hymn that we started with, it has that line, doesn't it? Come those who tell of battles won and those struggling in the fight. Actually, all of us gather together, whether we're telling the battles won or whether we're struggling. And part of our love for one another is that we're sensitive to the fact that that's true. So we need to be aware that not everybody will be in the same place. Some people, as we gather together, will be rejoicing in God. Some people will be wanting to rejoice in God. They're not quite feeling it. Some people will be wanting to want to rejoice in God. Those are some of the states that we can come in. And I want to argue, actually, all of those have something positive about them. And none of them are sinful. All of them are positive because they recognise that God is the source of joy. That's what we want to want, or what we want, or what we're enjoying. He is the food that we hunger after, or we long to hunger after. So if our desires are in his direction, then it's glorifying to him. But we can be very joyful But we need to be aware of what other people around us are feeling and be appropriate uh, to that. So we're to do it sensitively as well. But then always, uh, we're always to do it comprehensively. That's why we have in our statement, in every aspect of the Christian life. Really, that's the whole of life, isn't it, the Christian life? We can rejoice in other things, can't we? Uh, So Augustine uh, says this, He who loves you, uh, loves you too little, who loves anything together with you, which he doesn't love for yourself. I'll say that again. <laughs> I got lost in that one. Augustine said this about love. He loves you, God, too little, who loves anything together with you, which he doesn't love for your sake. Our love for God shapes our love for other things, doesn't it? It's not the other way round. Our love for our neighbour, our love for our spouse, our love for our children, our love for our mum and dad. Our love for them is shaped by our love for God. In our love for our neighbour, what we'll be looking for, we'll be looking for them to put their trust in Christ, won't we? We'll be looking for them to find that relationship with him. In our love for our spouse, what we'll be looking for, we'll be looking to make them more like Jesus, won't we? And in the same way, as we rejoice, we do it with everything that we rejoice in. It's comprehensive across our life. So to paraphrase Augustine, uh, he rejoices in you too little, who rejoices in anything else uh, with you, which he does not rejoice in for your sake. So what I really mean by that is that our enjoyment of God shapes our enjoyment of other things. Our enjoyment in nature, for example, becomes God-focused. Instead of going, how amazing is nature, we go, how great thou art, as we look out at his creation. It shapes our enjoyment of entertainment. That becomes God-focused. What amazing God to give minds to be able to write great TV programmes or films. Our enjoyment of food becomes God-focused because all good gifts around us are sent from heaven above. And we thank the Lord, don't we? Our enjoyment of each other becomes God-focused. How wise of God to put that person in my path who had just the right word to say to me at that time. 
Actually, our rejoicing in other things is Godward again. It shapes our, our rejoicing in other things. So we show it genuinely, our joy. We show it sensitively, remembering that not everybody's in the same place. We show it comprehensively, even the other things that we rejoice in. We should be rejoicing in God. So then finally, how will this show itself in our church? Well, the first thing I want to say is that we weep with those who weep. We weep with those who weep. Joy is not always to be expected. We want to fight for joy, don't we? And part of that is actually weeping with those who weep. We don't want to be a church, do we, where if someone is upset, we just sort of say, oh, cheer up, misery guts. It'll be all right. We want to be pursuing joy, but part of that is recognising that we're not always joyful. If we were always joyful, we wouldn't need to pursue joy, would we? We all need to be honest and open about where we are. A family is a place where you can be yourself. Church is that family. And it should be a safe place where if we're upset, if we're sad, if we're not joyful, it should be okay to show that. And we need to work hard at making that a reality, that church is a safe place. And when I say church, think about it. Church isn't an event, is it? I'm not just talking about Sunday morning, as though everybody needs to come and cry on a Sunday morning or not cry on a Sunday morning. Actually, we're a community, aren't we? So as we meet up with one another in the week, as we meet up in life groups, that's church, and that should be a safe place as well, where people can be real with each other, when people can be family. But it does include this event, doesn't it, of Sunday morning, that we should be, it should be a safe place where we come in different places, and that's okay, because we're all pursuing joy, but we'll all be at different places in where we're finding it, how we're finding it. So we weep with those who weep, and then secondly, we rejoice with those who rejoice. Joy is always to be pursued. So we help one another rejoice. Just as we accommodate others when uh, they're not joyful, so uh, we should accommodate people who are joyful, who are rejoicing. We want the atmosphere in church to be real. But we want to be moving in a joyful direction, don't we? We want to be helping one another move on to joy. And that won't happen overnight. We want to be joyful. We want to welcome people into an atmosphere where we're genuinely happy to see each other and happy to meet with God. That won't happen overnight. It's something that we need to constantly fight for. But there are some concrete things that we can do uh, to help with this to close. One, we can pursue joy in God ourselves. And by that I mean if we're all fighting in our own time, in our own walk with Christ, then that effect will grow as we gather together, uh, as we meet with one another, actually it will have a sort of growing effect. So that's number one, we can pursue joy ourselves, that helps the church pursue joy. Secondly, we can be positive when there are things to be positive about. We can choose to be optimistic and see the bright side, um, rather than choosing to see the downside. Uh, You know that two different people can come to the same uh, event, can't you, or same thing, and, and see almost opposite things. We can choose to be more optimistic than we are. When there are things to be positive about, we can be positive about them, and that helps the mood, doesn't it? To be more joyful. We can be thankful when there are things to be thankful about. And again, it's often a matter of just seeing things, isn't it? Uh, Rather than looking at the things that there are to be pessimistic about and sad about, we can look about things that we can be thankful for. Uh, And then finally, we can celebrate when there are things to celebrate. God has given us good things in this world that we can celebrate. Birthdays, Christmas, um, 
All sorts of different things. Creation. But especially service in the church. Uh, We're told in the Bible to honour people who spend themselves for the gospel. So think about last weekend when we had people came and helped us from South Craven. We can give them chocolates and flowers. That's okay to say how thankful we are. We can celebrate their service to us. They gave up their Saturday so that we could spend the day together. And we can do that for one another in the church. Celebrate service as people pour out themselves for each other. But we must do it out of genuine love. As I said at the start, that's a gift of God as well. Not an optional thing like a carriage on a train. It's something that all of us must have. So let's pray that God would willingly bestow this gift on us. Let's pray for love for one another and join him. So let's come before him now in prayer. Let's pray.